Jodcast, picking up strange car-shaped objects in our telescope beams, with George Bendo, Yunsung Lee, Emma Alexander, Jake Morgan, Ben Shaw, Monique Henson, and Tom Scrag. The Jodcast, February 2018 Extra Edition. Hello, and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Emma, and joining me in the studio are Jake and Ben. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. In the show this time, we have Yun Song Lee and George Bendo taking your astronomical questions, and we interview Hugo Messias about gravitational lensing and some other bits as well. But first, before all of that, Monique Henson sits down with Dr. Bob Watson in this month's extended job bite. Hi, I'm here with Dr. Bob Watson from the University of Manchester. Welcome back to the Jodcast. Hello, yes, it's been a while. Yeah. I thought, well, I thought I'd grab you because I'm not sure we've ever properly interviewed you about your research. Uh, well, I think I probably escaped by, well, actually by being out of the country for a long time. I think I was one of the first Jodcast enthusiasts because I sort of keep track of the news back at home, as it were, mm-hmm. while I was in foreign parts, so out in, in Tenerife. Ah, so you're a long-time fan as well. Yes. That's good to know. I so have a t-shirt. You have the t-shirt? Oh. I have an original t-shirt. I'm kind of jealous because I would like to have a t-shirt. So could you start off by telling us a little bit about what your research is on? Okay, well, I tend to be a slightly strange jack-of-all-trades and master of none. So I tend to work in between the technicians and the scientists, starting way back with Tenerife Experiment, which was the first one I got involved with, constantly because we're building up this cosmic microwave background experiment with leftover parts back at Jodrell. We had this thing in the field, so I was constantly going between the technicians wanting to do tweaks and stuff. I had to build my own little... little well, we didn't even have an acquisition computer to begin with, so I had to build something out of... It was all done with traditional Jodrell's chart recorders. <laughs> wow. So I had to build a, an analogue computer to be able to do all the switchings. And we did drift scans through the moon just to calibrate it. Mm-hmm. And then it got sent out with me. I was doing an MSc course, which had just finished, but we had this experiment that would look at the cosmic wave background at 10 gigahertz and an angular scale of 8 degrees. And they needed somebody to look babysit it <laughs> while it was out in Tenerife for three months. Back at the end of 1984, I think, I went out with it was there for about 33 years, <laughs> off and on, mm-hmm. uh, looking after various uh, CMB experiments, so we went from 10 to 15 to 30 gigahertz, then we had a 30 gigahertz interferometer, and then that sort of led the way to the VSA, which is a very, everybody's heard of the VLA, which is a very large array, which was, was a very small array, so in collaboration with Cambridge and the IAC in Tenerife, we had this experiment make maps of the cosmic microwave background. This was quite a big project. I was sort of left on the island to look after it, <laughs> calibrate it, set up the queues, and just observe various patches of the sky to integrate down to try and get the power spectrum. So when the project started, we were hoping that we could actually get the top of the peak, but as always, gets slightly delayed because of money problems and... and uh, clarifying the site and everything like that. So we just missed getting the Doppler peak. We concentrated on trying to evaluate the, the power spectrum over the peak and get the peaks and troughs that can, can, that can so that the peak tells you that the universe is flat, but the sub-peaks can tell you what the material content of the universe is. So if it's how much dark matter, 
we didn't at that time the, the idea of dark energy was just a line so if you do it really well you can tell something about neutrinos but that was towards the end of the project so you were saying that when you were working on the very small array, you were focusing on trying to get measurements of the power spectrum. But before the very small array, you said you were working on another kind of smaller project. So that's where you started off. Oh, yes. So this was Tenerife Experiment. We was just given the name because it was an experiment that goes to Tenerife. <laughs> and in the end, we got a prize from the town hall because it sort of raised the profile of Tenerife. Oh, wow. So that's yeah. quite good. But, but the actual Tenerife Experiment was an experiment that was one of the sort of early cosmic microwave background experiments where you're actually trying to find a signal. Mm-hmm. So it was back in the days before there was a signal. So we had two horns, horns that were designed for go on telescopes to pick up the radiation reflected off the big parabolic dish. Mm-hmm. And an angular scale of about 8 degrees was the first one. And working at 10 gigahertz, because we obtained a crash that worked at 10 gigahertz, which just got you into the regime that you could start looking at the cosmic microwave background. It just switched between the signal from one horn to the other every 32 milliseconds, if I remember right. And there was a great big mirror in front of it, well, metal plate that flipped over every 10 seconds or something like that. So then you could actually measure differences in temperature between various bits of the sky separated by 8 degrees on an angular mm-hmm. scale of 8 degrees. So each horn would measure a different patch of the sky? Yeah, it was just pointing completely static at a point on the meridian so the sky would drift through. So you would end up making a line map of temperature variation over the day. So we were locked into one particular declination. And then every week or so, I'd come along with my spanners and <laughs> ratchet down the, the elevation of the mirror so to get a different area of the sky. Ah, OK. So you've kind of been with the CMB since it's very early work. Yes, yeah. yes. So mm-hmm. back, so this was 1984... So this was Rod Davis, Anthony Lazenby, who was inspired by the Ovro results. So they did some work with the Mark II uh, on an angular scale of about seven and a half minutes. But that would only work during a hard frost out at Jodrell because you needed to work at eight, ten gigahertz, something like that. But because the absolute critical part is the water vapour content of the atmosphere. So that emits, and of course if you you look at the sky and you see clouds here and not there, you get this signal which interferes with the signal you're trying to find. So which is part of the reason why we went out to Tenerife. The Tady Observatory, which is about 2.4 kilometres above sea level, so you actually go up there, you're next to the Tady Mountain, which is even higher, and you can see all the clouds below you, so it's quite nice. Especially oh, wow. on, on a full moon. Yeah. So you see this sea of clouds behind you. All the water vapour is below you. And you've got a clear sky. So it's quite nice up there at night. It's impossible to identify constellations because there are so many stars. Oh, wow. There's just stars everywhere. Just screw up your eyes a bit, thin throughout all the fainter stars. And, ah, oh, yes, there's Orion. I've never thought of too many stars <laughs> being <laughs> a problem. Yeah. <laughs> you were saying that um, they initially tried to make some measurements with Mark II at Jodro. Yes. Would they be able to do that now? Probably even more difficult now mm. because the problem then was water vapour, but nowadays you've got the problem of RFI. Mm-hmm. The, the band of frequencies you're being allocated for doing Wi-Fi, see it so, so Wi-Fi works at sort of 2.4 gigahertz, mm-hmm. which is the same as your microwave oven, and if your oscillator isn't perfect, then you get multiples of this, which would propagate up to 10 gigahertz. Mm-hmm. It's horrible. In order now to do cosmic microwave background experiments, you need to go out to 
isolated places like Atacama Desert, mm. Chile, the Antarctica. You were saying on the Tenerife experiment, you were looking at the power spectrum and see me. Could you briefly explain what that is? Oh, okay. Well, so this was a combination of Tenerife experiment and oh. the VSA. Yes, sorry. The, the Tenerife experiment actually does have one of the distinctions of being the ground-based experiment with the lowest L value that you can get to, an L of 22, the centre of the window function. The power spectrum of the Cosmic background, the way I have explained, is it's a bit like the graphic equaliser you had on your father's hi-fi system, in that each knob looked at a particular range of very narrow frequencies. So rather than being sound frequencies, well, actually, the Cosmic background is actually looking at sound frequencies in the very early universe, but on scales of hundreds of millions of light years at the time they were released. We now see those as they were like ripples through this last scattering surface. So you still see these pressure waves on the surface of the last scattering is what we call the cosmic ray background. So you see a whole load of ripples effectively across this sphere and you can do a Fourier, something called Fourier transform which actually converts those spatial variations into an angular scale. So you can then plot the amplitude of these with angular size. So you see the predicted strongest signal you should see in the cosmic wave background is on one degree, which has an L value in this spherical harmonic analysis of around about 200. That peak tells you the shape of the universe, if it's open, closed, or just a critical, and it seems to be just a critical. So there's just enough energy for it to escape to, well, in the early models, to escape to infinity and just grind to a halt. But now we have this thing called dark energy, which is actually giving you a bit of extra push, and now is actually making it accelerate, so the whole thing's getting a bit more complicated. Mm. And actually that brings up a point. What's it been like to work in cosmology from before dark energy was a thing <laughs> and see that big transition? Because oh. for me it's really bizarre, because I, even in school, learned about dark energy, and so it blew my mind to think about what it was like before then and I've read some papers before then and it's quite oh, yes, a transition it is, it's, the change has been phenomenal because mm. when I started we were talking about an open baryonic universe and that, and that was why we ended up doing the cosmic ray background experiment because the predicted level was one part in 10 to the 4 so well, it's easy, you can just go out and observe for a few months and you'll be able to see that but then after about 6 months, ooh, nothing there the interchange between the theorists and the observers, I was one of the observers, so we would go and observe and get a new level. Your theory doesn't explain this, so they would <laughs> go away. So, oh, well, we've forgotten this thing. Yes, yes, we, we need some... Ah, so we, we started off with isocurvature, with adiabatic fluctuations, so they're just, just like temperature variations, so you squash a bit of gas and it gets hotter. We think we can have isocurvature, so vary the number of particles in, in your perturbation, but the temperature stays more or less the same. But then that didn't work. It didn't agree with what the large-scale structure you could see in the universe. So then they had to start throwing in dark matter, and then we got to the level where that didn't work. And then you had to play around with the sort of types of dark matter, so you had to shift to cold dark matter rather than hot dark matter, which is what sort of neutrinos, again, that produced the wrong spectrum and, and the universe didn't shape, didn't agree with it. And we were just getting down to the level where they were starting to run out of ideas and we said, oh, hang on, we think we can see something at round about <laughs> 1.5 times 10 to the minus 6, well, about 30 microkelvin. 
This is a signal, and we got getting to that limit that when W Mac, not not W Mac, Kobe got to the same level, so they just picked us. Oh, that must have been frustrating. Yes, yes, because yes. yeah. we were getting into the statistical grey area, so we could see you have this thing called a likelihood curve that tells you how likely a particular amplitudes are. For the long time, you could put a confident two sig limit on it because you could say, well, the foreground if there are any would would actually mean that the cosmic background intrinsic signal was much less than this. We were actually seeing a bump. Our likelihood curve was flattening out at right around the sort of level of about 30 microkelvin, switching from a two sigma upper limit to a. You need to get to a two sigma detection, and there's a long integration time that you have to do that. So we sort of stuck in limbo, and the bicep was stuck into this thing as well. We've got lots more data, but our limit hasn't got any better. <laughs> and just as we sort of see the likelihood curve starting to dip down at sort of ruling out zero isotropies, Kobe published. Damn. <laughs> so you briefly mentioned in all of that foregrounds. Yes. What are they? And foregrounds. So that's a very interesting subject since I'm also quite interested in foregrounds. So you've got this cosmic microwave background, which is way off 13.8 billion years ago the signal was released. But nearer to us, that signal's got to go through all quasars, forming galaxies, galaxies, and our own galaxy. And the biggest foreground is our own galaxy. And can produce signals both by synchrotron, by electrons whizzing around in the magnetic field of our, our own galaxy, and by dust particles. And it just so turned out that the Tenerife experiment at the time was working at a particular interesting range of frequencies so from 10 to 30 gigahertz where a certain type of very small dust which we think is spinning actually produces another foreground. One of the early results from the Tenerife experiment was one that indicated this spinning dust was real. At the time I was sceptical by being this person who's always working on the um, systematics and calibration running around. Mm. So we, we calibrated with some Americans, Ted, Max Tedmark, and they approached it in a very sort of black box approach. So you put in your equations and you get a result. Mm-hmm. If you look at the data, there's one blob near the border where the galaxy is cut off, and I don't trust the baselines. There's a big H2 region there, so I'm not mm. entirely convinced. So later on, I mentioned this the time Cosmos Holmes experiment, Rafa, saying, well, if there's any spinning dust, it's in this blob here. So I was there looking at the first results. I said, oh, well, I'll have a look at this blob again. It has a beautiful spinning dust spectrum. Oh, perfect. So it's a Perseus cloud. Mm-hmm. And we did some follow observations with VSA. And yes, it's one of the strongest regions of spinning dust signal. This is a foreground which could potentially, well, affect cosmic microwave background experiments looking to B modes. I think we've ruled that out now because signals should dive quite strongly as you go towards the frequencies they're interested in, 100 to 200 gigahertz. Mm. But it messes up your foreground extrapolation since all the space-based OB, WMAP and Planck all sort of ran out at sort of 30 gigahertz going to low frequency and that's where the spectrum is as you go into lower frequencies is going up so you think it's synchrotron or a mixture of synchrotron and free free emission due to electrons hot electrons is the free free and the synchrotron is the electrons in the magnetic field but this spinning dust signal gives you a bump 
at around about 20 gigahertz and has a, a width of um, about 10, 20 gigahertz as well. You can't see until you go over it. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, the old Tenerife experiments and the Cosmos Homos and now the Quixote experiment, which I'm sort of involved in at the moment, is looking for that spinning dust signal. So I guess in that way, some of the, the ground-based experiments oh. complement the space-based ones. Yes, because yeah. the whole reason why these space-based ones stopped at 30 gigahertz is because the size of horns and the dishes you need to get down to the resolutions you need are too big to fit in comfortably to a on a satellite. So mm-hmm. the plank had a sort of mirror that was about one and a half metres, and to do half a degree observations at 10 gigahertz, you need at least three metres more. That's bigger than the launch vehicle you could fit in. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty huge, actually. Yes. 10 metres is... Ten a... me- well, not, well yeah. not three metres, but yes. But mm-hmm. if you want to go down to, to five gigahertz, yeah. then yes. Fortunately, the atmosphere is not so bad there, so then you can actually do this from the ground. Mm. After working on the Tenerife experiment, you then went to the very small array, and then what was the next step after that? Okay, Planck. Planck, Planck. Oh. So I worked on Planck. But how long did the VSA run for? From 2000 to 2007, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's about, so about seven years. Okay, that's quite well. Yeah. So tell us about Planck and what Planck, it's like. Okay, well, at Planck, I work mainly on the um, systematics. Hmm. So the, there were two main things. There was a thing called the ADC effect. So the so the, all these experiments, you have a detector that gives you a voltage but you want to turn that into Kelvin. Mm-hmm. So you need a device to do this conversion, which is called an ADC, which is, stands for Analog to Digital Converter. But they're not perfect. The way they convert a voltage into a binary number, essentially. The steps between each binary number and the voltage can be slightly irregular. It's normally good enough for 1% or better, which means you can actually measure the power quite well. But what wasn't really realised at the time was that the difference between a small difference in voltage to a small difference in temperature that you want to get out to do your calibration on and it turns out if there's a slight misstep in this voltage step as you go in binary numbers can put a little bit of a kink into this response curve that completely could cause a variation of up to a few percent in the the calibration curve which is huge for something like that yeah but to some extent, you can calibrate that out because you're calibrating on the dipole, which is also going through the same process. In the early days, there was this temperature cycle in the plant due to switching on and off the radio transmitter. So you actually had quite rapid changes in temperature, which changes the, the gain of the system, which then changed the working level. The voltage was running at, which then changed the voltage. So they were scratching their heads and I came along and said, oh, I've seen this before with a Tenerife experiment. Ah, so you were the right person at the right time, pretty much, as well. I worked out a a way by looking at the white noise, so you can see the variations in the white noise, and then invert that in to get out a response curve. Mm. Put that in, and it it fixes it to sort of tenth of a percent level. And I guess that just goes to show how much you need people who straddle instrumentation and observation because otherwise you wouldn't have had that experience and you wouldn't have known that at all (laughs) and I suppose it also goes to show how precise Planck is that you know problems on that scale mattered yes (laughs) so you also talked a little bit before about foregrounds one thing I know that people can do it 
but I really don't understand how you can subtract the universe <laughs> from an observation because it sounds like an impossible task. Well, you, you subtract the local universe. The local universe, I should you, say. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes. It depends on the, the quality of your data. You need to know partly what your foregrounds are doing, and you also know to what your background signal you're looking at the cosmic background. So we can use the laser arm in this case is the spectrum as you go in frequency it varies quite strongly. So the cosmic wave background, if you work in thermodynamic units, should be fixed. So it should just look like a 3K black body. But the foreground, so the, the synchrotron, changes quite strongly with frequency. So it's quite strong at low frequencies and drops with a power law, so it goes very quickly with frequency. And then dust does something similar on the other side and ramps up quite strongly with frequency. Just at the top end of the Planck frequency, you can start seeing it curving over where you start seeing the black body curve of dust, which is around about 20 Kelvin, which is a sort of typical dust temperature, that, since dust is heated by starlight from our own galaxy. You have maps at uh, nine different frequencies, and you can interpolate, essentially, to... So the, I think the, the cleanest frequencies in Planck were the, the 70 and 100 gigahertz, if you look at the, the lowest and the highest frequencies, it's completely dominated by the foregrounds. You look at the 17, the 100 gigahertz, you can see a thin bit of the galaxy now, and there's stuff at high latitudes, which you can't quite see by eye, but you know it's there. So you can actually extrapolate from where it's strongest, make up a template and the spectral dependency it has, and subtract that out at the clean frequencies at 17, 100 gigahertz. And then that gives you your cosmic microwave background map just sounds so complicated. I'll be honest, no, it really shows the strength of modern astronomy, the fact that we can do that. And I remember one, um, we had an MSc student here, and he described what he was trying to do working on the CMB, and what the group was trying to do is trying to detect a mosquito's wings at an ACDC concert, or something like that. Which, right. Yeah, I thought we kind of brought it home, just how difficult that task is. And I suppose what happened with BICEP, Yes. actually shows that even more. Could you talk a bit more about yes, that? Yes, so I did have a little bit of involvement in that since I remember we were sitting in the Lovell Theatre here watching the press conference uh, where they announced the results and they announced the level of their foreground subtraction and they thought, well, actually, that's not quite right since <laughs> we know there are areas of polarisers like 10% where the dust signal is, is weak. You tend to see a mixture of lots of dust population, but when you're looking at high galactic latitudes, you tend to see just sort of one, which is fairly strongly polarised, and there's another background as well, which is the cosmic infrared background, so when you take that out, actually there is about sort of like a 10% polarisation there, and they were sort of, sort of cracked off models that were sort of like 3 or 4%, so that rang some bells. I did actually reverse engineer their PDFs to actually extract their data from their plots, Wow. I did. That's commitment. And I actually cross-correlated it with the Planck data. Oh. And, of course, I couldn't say anything, but it indicated that there was a problem. But so you, you kind of sat at home quite smug, going, I know there's an issue, but I can't say anything. <laughs> it was worse than that, yeah. because we, we had here all the people saying, oh, they beat you to it. Mm. And we were sort of, well, A, they haven't, and we know they haven't, but we can't say anything. <laughs> But the level of that sort of analysis I did was looking at because of all the quantization errors and that. There was a correlation there. Mm. Oh dear. That sort of got me onto this Tiger team that worked with Planck and the, the Bicep people. 
I worked up a bit more looking at the synchrotron emission. So the synchrotron limits, if you're sort of getting down to those sort of levels, shouldn't be a problem if it's the, the typical synchrotron. So if anything's flatter, then, then again you can start feeling the problem. But So we went out there and sat in a the room there and they said, well, we have to go through a whole load of protocols gave them a little bit of our dust data and they gave us their data and then they did the correlation. So, oh, yes, there's a problem. <laughs> and what was that like to kind of, because these are two, fair, well, Planck is a world-leading project that was also extremely secretive. Yes. It was kind of a running joke in astronomy <laughs> about how secretive Planck was. What was that like to then work in a collaboration with a completely different group? Well, it was actually quite good. Mm. They were quite good people. You could actually just sit down and have a chat, so it actually went mm. quite well. I mean, the problems was, was, was sort of the political level, was just sort of how much data sharing you can do. So there was quite a bit of restrictions on that. But by the end, that got fairly relaxed and we sort of understood each other. Yeah, that's good. That's how you'd hope science would be. Yes, yes, yeah. yes it turned out to be. You mentioned a few times about measuring polarisation, and that was particularly something that BICEP was the problem with BICEP. Could you tell us a little bit, first of all, about what polarisation is and its relevance to the CMB? Right. So polarisation tells you about the... So you have electrons which are... No, electrons scattering photons, and the photons have a particular direction that they oscillate in, and that's called their polarisation. And the scattering process of the electrons tends to favour one polarisation with respect to another depending how the light is distributed when it was scattered. So if you go back into the early universe and you've got a hot spot off to one side and it's scattering off, that can give you a net polarisation signal when we see it again. And you can actually both see the polarisation signal and the hot spot that led to it. So there is a, a correlation between the polarisation and the temperature. And these are called E-modes. So it's fairly understandable and it gives you an extra handle on determining things about the electron history in the universe and splitting some of the degeneracies you can get on certain parameters, which I can't think of at the moment. But, and that's all fairly understood and that gives you more information to work with. But what everybody's interested in, the holy grail of the CMB, is these things called B-modes. And so the E-modes give you radial and circular patterns on the sky, whereas the B-modes are more kinky, spiral patterns. And those, the things that can cause B-modes are these early primordial gravitational waves. And we're interested in those because they would be a, a smoking gun signal for inflation, which was back at 10 to the minus 35th of a second after the Big Bang that caused the whole universe to expand rapidly and would solve the problems of homogeneity and how one part of the universe that's completely disconnected from another one has the same temperature and has similar variations in fluctuations. So we would like to prove that inflation was a theory, but one of the things that it doesn't predict very well is the amplitude of these gravitational waves, and that sort of ties back into the mechanism that causes inflation. So the amplitude of the gravitational waves would tell you the energy scale that this inflation field happened at. And in this case, there is no correlation between the temperature map and the, the polarisation signal. So we're working a little bit in, in the blind. We don't know what level it's expected, because the E-modes, we knew what level to expect. Uh, for the B-modes, we've got no idea. It could, in, in fact, be next to zero. We just don't know.
So it's quite interesting. So if you did find them, they'd have the potential to be a way of probing inflation and yes. actually understanding some of the physics in that, because I think at the moment there, is, there aren't really any observational probes for that. The observational probes are the power spectrum, the primordial power spectrum, so it predicts a, a, a power law with a slight slope into it, which we are seeing, but then the typical astronomical thing is putting in a power law spectrum, so it, it doesn't really explain it. It gives you a, a way of producing it. Three signals for inflation, so one was the power spectrum, I can't remember the other one. Hmm. But well, this gives yeah, yeah. An, another method for kind of looking at the mechanism of inflation yes. and so on. But as you were saying, you, you don't actually know too much what you're looking <laughs> for. Then what kind of things can make it difficult to observe these B modes? Before we were talking about the anisotropies and the, the foreground, you needed to get the foregrounds out of the way to about a few tenths, a tenth of a, a percent. Well, two, no, sorry, no. for the intensity signal. The strongest things on the plane, but we're not really interested in the plane. You go up to high galactic latitudes and the foregrounds and the CMB is at similar sort of amplitude. You can do a, a crude bit of removal of the foregrounds and you can get quite a good signal of the CMB. Unfortunately, with B modes, you're well into the foreground. So the predicted level of foregrounds is, as I say, roughly about the same level as the CMB anisotropies. Whereas the E mode signal is about an order of magnitude lower than that, and then the B mode signal is about an order of magnitude lower than that still. This is in power spectrum measurement. For B modes, the biggest signal you can eliminate at the moment is a factor 10 below the anisotropy mm. in terms of temperature. In fact, pushing lower. So that means you need to go clean up your foregrounds to at least a few percent and in the future, maybe to a few tenths of a percent. So that's going to be really difficult. No, that definitely sounds like quite a challenging thing to do, and I guess that's what the next generation of CMB telescopes are looking at. Yes, in the pipeline now, there's a sort of the fourth generation of ground-based experiments, and then some space-based. There isn't actually one agreed yet. There's a few plans, so I think Japanese have their Lightbird, Americans have their pixie, but they'll haven't got funds to actually mm. produce the experiment and launch it. Yeah, it's still a little way off. Still yeah. a little way off. And of course, we've talked throughout about foregrounds, and for cosmologists, foregrounds are kind of a nuisance. But for astronomers, they're not at all. Oh, yes. Could you talk a little bit about what we can learn from the foregrounds themselves? Okay, so part of the project I'm currently involved in is working with Spanish, Italian and Cambridge looking at the Planck data and supplementing it with Quixote data and this includes this spinning dust 10 to 15 years so we're actually trying to tie down what the legacy project of Planck to actually try down the foreground synchrotron and the dust and the spinning dust in much more detail than with Planck by supplementing it with the Quixote data and any other data that we can lay our hands on and to actually try and figure out what the magnetic field of our own galaxy is depends on getting the synchrotron and the dust signal sorted out and also what's going on in the galactic plane so there's the fan region which is a, a region that's sort of in the Perseus arm fit about one and a half thousand light years away seems to be puffed up and there's the north galactic spur which seems to be a bubble that's been inflated by a no the region, a whole load of supernovae and hot stars are pumping up this bubble 
that could be right next to us around about 120 parsecs away, or it could be further away, we just don't know. We're trying to tie down where these sort of things are in our local area of the galaxy, try and improve our foreground predictions for these future B-mode experiments at high galactic latitude, and just basically try and understand the galactic plane as well. Mm-hmm. No small order, really. No small order. Mm. And you mentioned Quixote, this ground-based experiment. What kind of stages is that experiment in at the moment? Okay, so that's been ongoing for a number of years now, five, seven years, going from various stages. So we had a single telescope observing at 10 to 19 gigahertz, doing a foreground, a broad, full-scale survey of the sky, including the galaxy, and also regions earmarked for doing, looking for the speed mode signal on three areas of the sky. And it's been going on for five years. Just coming online is a second telescope, which is being populated with pixels to observe at 30 gigahertz, and also 44 gigahertz, which then will look at the both the the synchrotron emission again over the whole sky at a lower level that we did with the earlier low frequency experiments, and, and to look at these areas for B mode. Probably won't be at the level where you can actually see the B modes because the, the other expenses are sort of getting to that levels, but would help predict the foregrounds that are going on there mainly due to synchrotron because. The one thing that hasn't been really realised until recently is that if you're looking at these nice frequencies of 100 and 150 GHz, synchrotron has a sort of long lever arm and if you're trying to dig down B modes 100 times lower than the present limits, then you're going to hit the synchrotron as well as the dust. So you need to sort those out and what level you expect. Yeah, so even though you won't be able to find a constraint on B-modes now, it's going to help future observations for B-modes and tell us more about the galaxy. Yes. Yeah. Especially the high galactic latitudes where it's fairly a weak signal to look at. Mm. And quite interesting because stuff at high galactic latitudes is stuff that's been kicked off the plane, so either by the supernova explosions or bubbles being inflated or even this Fermi bubble of stuff towards the galactic centre. So... Mm was trying to dig into all that. Ah, no, that sounds very cool and look forward to hearing some results from that. Thank you for coming on the Jodcast. Thanks for that, Monique. Now Tom Scrag interviews Hugo Messias about gravitational lensing. Hello, I'm Tom Scrag. I'm here with Hugo Messias from the Joint Alma Observatory in Hello. Santiago. So welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Hello. Oh, you're most welcome. You're over here for a conference. How was the conference? It was a very impressive small conference. It's one of those about star formation measurements in the long wavelength part of the electromagnetic spectrum. And it's one of those conferences that you come and some of these people actually said that they were not expecting to learn so much. I was actually coming here already with that perspective to actually learn more and know what's out there now in the field. So it was really fulfilling in that sense. Yeah, I learned a lot, of course. Okay, and you gave a talk at the conference? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my talk was about the latest advances on the study of this one galaxy that it's being gravitationally magnified by a foreground galaxy. 
So in this case you have two galaxies aligning your line of sight, where one is much, much further than the one in the middle. So what you'll have is that if this one in the middle is massive enough, it will kind of bend the path of the light coming from the one in the background, and it, if it's perfect aligned, it will appear as a Einstein ring. In this case, it's actually almost close to a complete Einstein ring, and we knew from the start that was a messy system, and it will be fun. Either you want to <laughs> consider that negative or positive way, but it was a challenge. And uh, what we know now is that it's a merging system between one massive galaxy and another one that is a third of its size. So it's what we call a one to three merging system. Okay. Yeah. And that is considered like the boundary of what we call a major merger and a minor merger. A minor merger is like what people colloquially consider to be like a galaxy cannibalism, where you have a big galaxy and you have a satellite, and the satellite will slowly be devoured. Like, can you say that? Like devoured yeah. by the yeah, yeah. bigger galaxy. And that's a minor, okay. minor merger. It has its implications. A major merger is much, much bigger. In this is like too big galaxies merging together, it's a big mess, and then you try to see what will be the end scenario. And you can say there is two options. Either you have a lot of gas, and then the current stellar population will merge into a blend, which we'll later call a bulge, while the gas will settle down into a disk, and reform the disk, and you will have a disk-like galaxy. But depending on the size of the stellar components, you can have either a lenticular, which is kind of the sombrero galaxy, or you have something more dominated by the disk, but still with a significant bulge component. Like, nothing okay. like uh, the Milky Way. Milky Way is very, very dominated by the disk components. The bulge is kind of minor. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you can tell this from the way the galaxies are merging? Yeah, so for instance, I still have to compare with some simulations. It's ongoing work, but it's close to submission. But for instance, we need to just to see if the amount of gas that we know that there is in the system actually allows the galaxy to grow significantly. And what is the phase? Because we know that the smallest galaxy is actually the one where we see most stars being formed, of stars being born. And we see that there's about 400 solar masses per year. And this estimate comes from calibrations that have been studied, recalibrated, and retested. And that was one of the things that we were addressing here in this conference. I mean, what are the advantages of using these estimates from the infrared, from the millimeter, from the radio, when you compare them, for instance, with optical estimates, for instance? The optical, in one hand, is very much affected by dust around. So dust can be hit by optically and ultraviolet light, mm -hmm. and it will warm up. But it's energy that is absorbed. So you won't see it in the optical. So you know that stars form in a group, and you expect this many numbers 
of stars. And you know that in principle, if you get that initial distribution of stars, which we call the initial mass function, you expect this amount of UV light, this amount of optical light. But then there's dust that hides it. So if you try to estimate the star formation from the UV, you'll get an estimate that it's lower than what in reality there is. But you know then that this energy is not lost. This energy will then be re-emitted thermally by the dust at infrared to millimeter. So we can kind of recover. So if you combine the two, then you have a better estimate of the star formation. But sometimes you don't have one or the other. So you have yep. to correct for that. So again, this conference was, can we use these estimates isolatedly without combining to actually have overall estimate of the star formation rate in the universe, for instance? And again, going back to the galaxy that I was studying, we know that there's a considerable amount of gas that can, within the next four mega years, which means the next 40 million years, which in cosmic time is very, very short, if we keep the rate of star formation, can exhaust the gas that is available to form stars. And okay. I'm just talking about the gas in the molecular phase, which mm -hmm. is H2. But there's also atomic hydrogen from which stars can form, but way less efficiently. So that's kind of what you can understand this as the gas that will be used way in the future, but still allow the galaxy to grow. So, but here's the point. Will that gas have time to settle into a disk or not? And that's the question. So we know that the smaller galaxy will increase the stellar mass of the system by a quarter, because it's a one to three merger. But then it will grow a little bit because of the gas that it's currently forming into stars, and it will increase another third or something. But there's still atomic gas that will turn into molecular gas, but in that takes time. Then there's the dynamical settling of the gas into a disk, but which one is faster? You're hoping to look at that and try and get information on how quickly those things will happen? Or? So there is it's mostly assumptions, because even the turning atomic hydrogen into molecular hydrogen, there's many mechanisms. But because now it's just, we have the assumptions from how much does it take atomic hydrogen to turn into its molecular phase. And there's many scenarios that can make that transformation take from millions of years to way more like tens or hundreds of millions of years to have the whole amount of atomic gas turn into molecular gas. But you assume a number, since in these conditions you assume a given number. Now I don't know in, at the top of my head. But then you also can compare to simulations, where simulations is basically you clash two galaxies close in properties to the ones we are observing, and then you wait and see how much does it take for the gas component to settle into a disk. And then you compare the two. How much does it take the atomic to turn into molecular, and how much does the, the disk? Which one is faster is the one that will tell you the answer. But if it's kind of comparable, you assume maybe there will be a disk at the end of this merger. Which part of that work do you find most interesting? Is it the modeling of the behavior of the galaxies, mm -hmm. or the observations and then the comparison? It's a bit of both. In this case, the simulations that I'm talking about is actually taking from 
a team. So in the sense that they have their own computers, they have their own simulations, that they have been working a lot on these ones, and they know way more than I do. But And thankfully, they did this, which is they have this website where you can actually extract the different mergers that they simulated. And some of them may happen to be close to what you have okay. observed. Yep. If not, you ask them, this was the case, I send them an email, and could you simulate this kind of merger? And they did. I just need to download the results, and then I compare it to my Galaxy, right? <laughs> this is how it works. And it's in that sense, it's very cool, in the sense that astronomy is a huge big team. Of course, you will always, in all areas, have, I don't know if I can say it, but jerks. Competitive individuals. Yeah, competitive individuals, <laughs> yeah. But... Generally, astronomy is a huge, big team. And as long as we respect each other and you keep developing, and that's the cool thing. For instance, Alma, it has its difficulties in managing such a huge team because it's not because it's a huge team. It's because within this team, there's many, many different cultures. We have the European, we have the North American, we have the East Asian. So even within the European, there's many cultures there. Yes. So managing all of this, all of the different approaches that have been characterizing each of these societies for ages, scientific-wise, and even socially, it's hard. But mm-hmm. we, we are showing that it works. We are showing that Alma has been producing amazing results, has taught us a lot since 2011. And yeah, I've seen some yeah. of the images. They're absolutely yeah. stunning. It's a huge project, and it only resulted because people got together. And sometimes you see even countries that are part of this team, sometimes politically, they don't agree. But here, we yep. do, and we show that we can work together. And in the end, culture is just so minor compared to what we can learn. And if you get together what we're doing, it's very cool. So you get a lot of these kind of collaborations like you need something and you know that there are people that know more than you and you have to admit there are people that know way more than I do (laughs) okay I did a PhD I did a postdoc fine but there's so much to know about the universe that you cannot know everything in detail and even the things that you learn in the PhD you get out of your PhD and you realize damn there's so much to learn yeah, yeah. still. I know nothing. And, and that's, that's, you, you just have to be humble enough and say, I know nothing. So if there are people that know more than I do, so contact them and say, okay, I need your help for this. Can you do that? And most of the people will probably, yeah, sure. Tell me a little bit more about ALMA. So is it a radio telescope? Is it optical? Is it infrared? So the name ALMA means Atacama Large Millimeter Array. Sometimes you put in between brackets submillimeter array. It's just because the wavelength that it mostly is sensitive to has a wavelength of around one millimeter. Okay. So it can observe, for instance, between about 0.4 millimeters to about three millimeters and potentially up to seven millimeters. Are they big dishes? Yeah. So the next part in the name is the array. And array means you have not one single telescope or antenna, but many of them. And the reason why there is many of them is because it's not practical to actually build one single telescope that will 
cover the same area as this one's individual can be spread over the Shajnantor plateau. So oh, the, this is high up in the mountains. Yeah, so the first word Atacama, it's because it's in the Atacama Desert, which is an, a desert that's actually spread over Chile, Argentina and Bolivia. But the Chilean part is one that they found this plateau, which is a flat region at 5,000 meters. It's uh, around the base camp of the Everest, which is about five, five two hundred. And there is where the antennas are. But it's so huge that you can put these antennas as far apart as 16 kilometers away from each other. What I mean by that is that they can pretend that we are observing with a one single telescope the size of 16 kilometers. The largest movable steering single dish in the world, and there are about two that are the size of 100 meters. And that's basically the technology limit that you can steer a dish. Then there's the Arecibo and the other one in China, which, which is just looking up. And it's the secondary that moves. But you cannot see the whole sky with those. Because you cannot move them. It's too big, like 500 and the other one, I don't know how much meters it is. The one in China is 500 meters. Yeah, and, but the the other sea is also like almost there. Yes, they're very, uh, they're very similar. I think China is slightly bigger and you Yeah, no, it's just slightly bigger, that I know, yeah. But but the the thing is, you cannot move them. No. You cannot move them. So, Having this flexibility to actually have movable antennas that can, from time to time, mimic different sizes of telescopes, it's very, very handy for science. Then you have different details. Either you want to be more sensitive to the large-scale emission of a galaxy, or you want to actually pin down the very minor details in the spiral arms of a neighbor galaxy, for instance. That's the kind of flexibility that you have when you have such a telescope. The technology is called interferometry, which means that you're working with interferences. Each pair of antenna will receive radiation. But if they are pointing to the same place, they will be receiving radiation from the same source. And there is a very powerful computer also at 5,000 meters, that actually cross-matches these signals, and each pair of antennas, and we can have thousands, we actually mathematically translate that into an image. Can I just come back to something you, mm-hmm. we were talking about earlier? You said the galaxies that are colliding are being lensed or magnified by a nearby galaxy. Are an intermediate galaxy. So what kind of magnification or improvement in the image does that give you? So if it didn't have this galaxy in the way, could we detect the two that are colliding? Depends. So if we integrate long enough, then yeah. (laughs) But when I talk about magnification, is both spatially and in terms of flux. So... When you talk about magnification, it's actual magnification. You have magnifying glasses that help you see details in a better way. You just have to adjust the distance of that magnifying glass to actually have a proper image. Well, the distance of the lens, so the intermediate galaxy, we cannot control. 
when we are trying to understand the system, and when I mean the system is both the intermediate and the background, we assume some properties of the intermediate galaxy, and then we reconstruct what we think is reality of the background system. As soon as we have that, then we know the intrinsic properties of the background galaxy. And in terms of flux, or in terms of how much radiation we're receiving per area, which means how much, how many photons are actually entering the dishes, in this case, will depend on the properties of the intermediate galaxy. What I mean is that sometimes it's the intermediate galaxy is brightening the background galaxy by a factor of only two, but sometimes it's by 30. Yep. So right there, when you mean 30, it will mean that in order for you to detect at the same kind of signal-to-noise ratio, with the same kind of quality, you will need to square the time of integration or telescope time, so it will be 900. So you'll need 900 times more of telescope time to actually have the same quality in terms of how much flux do you have compared to what's the noise. But even then, you won't have the same quality of the data because there's also a spatial magnification. You see more details. And that kind of details, for us, if you don't have anything in between, is limited by the distance between antennas. And that one is fixed. Right. That's our limit. But then it comes gravitational lensing that gives us a boost. And then we can see even more details than current state-of-the-art technology allows us to. Oh, okay. So those are the two things that are cool about gravitational lensing. But it has its problems, which I said before, we have to assume something. If to reconstruct the shape, because it's not in focus yeah. for us. How long have you been studying this subject, working in this particular area? So, since my PhD. So, I started my PhD in 2007, and since then I've been mostly working in studying the coevolution of galaxies and what we call active galactic nuclei. Okay. Which means that there is, in the center of galaxies, a supermassive black hole accreting material, but while doing that, it radiates extra or induces that the surrounding material is being expelled to the surrounding medium. And depending on the way it does, it can actually prevent the gas to turn into stars. You're basically saying that you're quenching the star formation in galaxies. So that it's called feedback. It is feedback because gas is feeding the monster, but then the monster feeds some energy back into the medium. So that's why feedback. So there's many, many evidences that these mechanisms actually is telling us how a galaxy evolves in time, depending on the properties of the galaxy itself. So that's why we say it's coevolution of galaxies and AGN, so active right. galactic nuclei. Yeah, so one interacts with yeah. the other and they, they But it's a subject that actually it's still not clear. Right. So okay. maybe this kind of quenching of the subformation can happen, but not in the significant way that it's only the AGN or the supermassive black hole the cause of it. So sometimes you see some correlations between the two 
but they might be a result of one single reason. That's basically it. I also try to address this subject, but it's not an easy one. Just a, a couple of things then. Have you ever been up to Atacama? Have you been to the, visited yeah. the telescope? Yeah. So I'm uh, Alma Fellow, which means that I'm in Santiago in Chile. And every now and then I have to go to the observatory to execute the observations. What I mean by this is that there is every year people around the world submit projects and they say, I have this topic that I want to address. And in order for me to do that, I need Alma to observe this and this and this and this galaxies or stars or protoplanetary disks or whatever. And by this amount of time or to this amount of detail. And then every year people get together to actually evaluate this huge amount of proposals. This year was around 1,600, last year the same. So there are many proposals to be evaluated. And then the ones that are accepted are organized by what kind of array is needed for those proposals. Again, I'll recall you that the antennas in ALMA can be put at different distances from each other. Are they on tracks or is it mobile antennas? So there are two huge trucks that actually move them to different pads. And in each pad there's a connection that links them to the supercomputer. Oh, wow, okay. What we call the correlator. So physically, you pick these antennas up physically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit like the um, rocket launches at uh, Kennedy, yeah, for example. Yeah. It comes out the building and then yeah. on the back of a big and, truck. And, and it's a very sensitive uh, operation because you need the antennas to always be on. In the sense that because you have inside instrumentation that needs to be kept cold. And for right. that, you need energy and whatnot. So, yeah. So they're always powered up. Yeah, they have moved. to be always powered up for many issues, right. yeah. Do you need special altitude training to go to the observatory? Uh, there is. So we operate the telescope at 3,000. Because at 5,000 you already lack enough oxygen that sometimes you don't think stress. Yes. So we operate the telescope at 3,000 meters. At that place, you just need to have a certificate that you're healthy to be there. If you want to go to 5,000 meters, then you have to watch a video, check if you have enough oxygen levels in your blood, that kind of things. That's oh, okay. that's a normal yeah. thing. That's It's just with some simple things that you do and it doesn't hurt and you go, if you pass these kind of things. Yeah. And then normally, people that normally don't go there, they can only be at the site about two hours and then they have to come back. Altitude sickness would yeah, be a, yeah. start to be a real problem. Yeah. What are you planning to do next, say over the next year? Is it continuing the same topic, same set of observations? So we normally have different projects. So I started in Extragalactic, but since three years ago, I've been collaborating with a team that actually does cosmology kind of science, which means that there are, in this specific case, it's in physics, there are values or standards that we think they are constants with time. And if they aren't, then things get complicated. But right. you assume that they are. For instance, yeah. the mass ratio between the electron and the proton. That's one. And then that one you can actually test with ALMA observations. 
by observing specific transitions of molecules. In this case, are rotational ones that the molecule rotates, but it's at specific, let's call it speeds. <laughs> yep. And with that, you can actually get some estimate of how much did it vary since gig years ago. Yeah, but looking at the same transition at slightly different frequencies, so looking back in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you can, you so can have using the redshift? Yes, yes. Yes, okay. And that was one. Also tried to get into also planetary atmospheres. It didn't go well, but I learned a lot. <laughs> okay. I learned a lot. So this is exoplanets or no, solar system planets? I mean, eventually that will be the goal, but at the time was smaller than that. It's science. I mean, you keep failing, keep failing, and you keep pursuing what you think is correct and what moves you, what actually makes you go to work. Because if you talk with many of the people that work in science, they loved it. You have to love it. <laughs> it's not like other words. You're always fighting against the budget that it's getting short and that kind of things. And that. so you have to love what you do here in, while you're working in science. Science in general, I'm not just talking in astronomy. And that's what makes you keep going with a lot of fails. And there's a lot, I mean, there are some people that are brighter and manage to have more success. And you just have to admit it, and if you really love, you keep fighting for it. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Hugo, thanks for uh, spending the time with us today. Okay. Uh, very interesting talk. Thank okay. you. No, thank you for having me, and it was a very nice experience. Thanks for that, Tom. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. Now, Jake, I think you've got quite a few uh, little odds and ends for us this week, haven't you? So, yes, I do have quite a few various bits and pieces, because I've been at a little bit of an odd and end myself around the department, so I've been rounding up several different bits and pieces. The first of which is that there has been a recent individual achievement from the world of cosmology that I'd wager people haven't heard very much about. So the news is that Professor Peter Coles of both Cardiff and Maynooth Universities has outbearded a host of other famous faces to scoop the Beard of Winter Award for 2017-18. stroke Wow. That is amazing. I never, I didn't even realise that existed up until now. It does. So this is handed out by the Beard Liberation Front, the BLF. <laughs> I guess liberating them kind of removes the prize element as well. Hmm. In any case, they take their work very seriously. Wow. And so this particular award focuses on, and I quote, fuller organic beards suitable for winter weather, but also on beards that have made an early New Year impact in the public eye. Wow, I need to see a photo of this now. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure we can put a link to it in the show notes somewhere. Brilliant, because brilliant. Professor Coles runs a blog as well, Telescopa, that I follow, which I will put oh, a little link right, to that as yeah. well. It's an anagram of his name. It is. That's, oh, that's cool. That's why he chose it, in fact. <laughs> that is cool. So, so what, how does Tim feel about this? I'm not sure. Maybe we should put him forwards for nomination next year. I can just imagine him and Peter Coles kind of maybe killing each other in a field somewhere. <laughs> ripping <laughs> bits of beard out. Just in a beard off. Staring <laughs> at top of with each other. Oh, no, we don't want that, do we? No. No. That could be bad. So, yes, Professor Coles was able to outbeard a host of other contenders, including the musician Ed Sheeran, footballer Theo Walcott, and some bloke named Prince Harry. 
do they even have beards? Yeah. Hmm. Although not as majestic as Professor Coulson's, obviously. Well, or they would have once. Well, I must admit I don't keep up to date on the latest beard news usually, <laughs> so I'm happy for him and wish him all the best with his future beard endeavours. Mm. Perhaps there should be a beard archive. Mm. <laughs> yes. Well, I mention all of this because Professor Coles was my head of school when I was an undergraduate at Sussex University. Oh. So, I like to follow what he's doing. I think the big question I have is what exactly is it that he works on and does his beard in any way help him with that? Like, is he an observer? Does he go out into the cold and observe with telescopes and the beard keeps him warm and maybe helps his brain while he's observing? Um, I think he's a theorist. He is oh. very much a theorist. Oh, Maybe my theory needs more work. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, we all know about the physics beard of wisdom. That is a well-documented phenomenon. Oh, the, I've not heard of this. Maybe because I am beardless myself. Well, people grow beards to increase their wisdom stat. Mm, I see, I see. We've also mentioned over on our Facebook page, we're still hopefully looking at putting together some kind of proper studio. Are you saying that this isn't a proper studio that we're recording in now? It's got all the lovely soundproofing and we have a table and microphones and lovely postcards to look at? You're close to making contact with a carpet that's drooping off the wall. Shh, they don't need to know that. <laughs> I believe it was described as a cupboard in the last live episode we did. Cupboards have doors. This is just a recess. Th yeah. This is this is just the back of the lecture room. Yeah. It's meant to be a space for chairs. But it's served as well for many years. It has. It has. It but has. it would be nice to have our own dedicated room mm. with a lock on the door and a proper mixing desk instead. Yes. Of... But all of those things are work in progress, so... Yes. So we are working on getting a more permanent space. So we will hopefully let you know more about that when we do. Excellent. And one other piece from me that we didn't have the chance to touch on in the February main episode is, of course, the departure from Claire Bretherton in her position as the bringer of Night Sky South. So she's been with us for a number of years now and has now moved on to pastures new in a new job down in New Zealand. So it's, it's fair to say she's served us proud over the years, yeah. bringing us those segments. And she does her own editing as well, which, as a producer, is brilliant. Mm. Makes life very easy for us. It does. Well, uh, all the best to Claire, and yes. thanks, thanks, for, for thanks, yeah, thanks for all the broadcasting. Keep looking up. Is she being replaced? Space Place are working on that, I believe, but it could be a couple of months before that happens. Okay. So it depends on how successful their hunt is. So, are they all your numerous odd and ends then? Uh, yes, those are my ramblings for today. Cool, well, all, all very interesting ramblings. So for my odd and end this month, I'm afraid it is on a bit of a sad note. I was saddened last month to hear of the death of John Wall, a highly respected and admired member of the British amateur astronomy community. If you've ever used an amateur optical telescope, just above entry level or better, chances are you've encountered one of his numerous inventions. Crayford focuses, which are considered to be superior to other focuses such as rack and pinion based ones, became popular due to their ease of manufacture, with no high precision machining needed, making them much more accessible to the astronomical community. So John originally presented his new focuser to the Crayford Manor House Astronomical Society, after which his design was published in numerous publications in the UK in, in the early 70s. The crucial aspect of this is that John decided not to patent his invention, effectively donating it to the amateur astronomical community, and he also named it after the society that he was a member of. So he brought this kind of very important invention to the astronomical community, and, uh, you know, 
just decided to donate it to the world, which I think is absolutely lovely. He was also known for designing diolite-based refracting telescopes. So a diolite lens is a compound lens design that corrects optical aberrations, with the lens elements being widely air-spaced. And in 1999, John built a 30-inch zero chromat retrofocally corrected refractor telescope it sounds like it's a bit of a mouthful but it was the equal fifth largest refractor ever built and more impressively it was the largest ever built by an individual anywhere in the world so I knew of John through friends at the York Astronomical Society, some members of which helped rescue and restore his 24-inch refracting telescope. It's not quite as big as his 30-inch, but still very impressive. So that telescope was originally housed at the Crayford Manor House Society, and the telescope can now be found at Lime Tree Observatory in North Yorkshire. So my thoughts are with John's wife, Joyce, and the rest of his family and friends. And yeah, absolutely brilliant astronomer and uh, contributed greatly to, uh, well, not just the British amateur astronomy community, but worldwide as well. His invention can be found on so many telescopes, and he effectively donated it. Absolutely brilliant man. Never had the pleasure of meeting him, but like I said, I knew him through other friends. And That's yeah, quite a legacy. Yeah, definitely, yes, yeah. He uh, passed away last month, sadly, but yeah, he's definitely left a lasting impression, I think, on the community. Absolutely. So why was he less well-known than he should be? Well, because, I mean, he named his invention after the society that he was a member of, so, you know, it just doesn't have his own name attached to it. And uh, obviously with him not patenting the invention he kind of just gave the designs away so he wasn't kind of actively involved in selling any product or anything like that he just donated the designs and let people make them so he didn't make any money off of it either he was a well-known individual say within certain circles in the community but you might not necessarily have heard of him hopefully now i have changed this well hopefully we can put some links to him and his life oh definitely yes yes i'm sure we can round those up so obviously it's very sad, but he lived a good long life full of contributions to astronomy, uh, amongst other things. Moving on, we now have Ben, you've got, talking to us about a mission. Yes, yeah, so I've been reading a lot about the atmosphere lately, and there's been a mission to study the very upper reaches of our atmosphere. And this is a particularly interesting region because the conditions in this region respond not only to terrestrial weather, but also to weather out in space, so in the space around the planet, it's not empty, there's all kinds of charged particles and magnetic fields around there that can cause all kinds of problems for spacecraft and radio propagation. And so I've been reading about the atmosphere in general, so between about zero and seven miles, we're in the troposphere where we are now. This is where all weather takes place, most commercial aviation takes place in the troposphere. And one particular weird, slightly morbid statistic I read, that even if you get cremated, the vapour that comes off your body, chances are none of it will ever leave the troposphere. Oh, wow. So between 7 and about 30 miles up, we're in the stratosphere. There's still a little bit of weather there, but it's much lower density. It's deathly cold. You don't want to be there. And above that, between 30 and 50 miles, is the mesosphere, which is where most meteors burn up. Mm. Um, So if you're watching shooting stars or you're out, you know, looking at your meteor shower of choice, you're watching these events in the mesosphere. Now, between 50 and 400 miles, this is a huge, huge chunk of atmosphere, is the thermosphere. And this is where the International Space Station is and where a lot of our low-Earth orbit satellites are. And that responds to conditions right down in the troposphere. So if there's a particularly vicious hurricane, that can send waves up into the thermosphere and cause the pressure to increase, and so the temperature can increase. And that, of course, has implications for the orbits of spacecraft that are up there. Similarly, there's very little up there. The density is extremely low, but conditions in the area around the Earth, in the so-called exosphere, where there's lots of charged particles, magnetic fields, that can cause what few oxygen and nitrogen atoms there are in that part of the atmosphere to become ionised. And of course, because there's so little there, it will take any one of those ions quite a long time to encounter another 
ion and then neutralise itself. And so that part of the atmosphere can become charged. And that particular region of the thermosphere we call the ionosphere. And this has the effect of being able to bounce radio waves. In fact, we've got an aerial at Jodrell Bank which can look at meteors in the radio and it does that by listening to a Spanish radio station which is over the horizon. Normally we can't hear it but when a meteor comes over it manages to bounce waves from that Spanish radio station down to this area at Jodrell Bank. So the ionosphere works in a similar way. We can Mm. talk to transmitters over the horizon by looking at this thing. And so it's important just for the safety of our astronauts for understanding how that region of the atmosphere becomes charged can affect how well electronics work in space. And so what NASA done is they've launched this thing called GOLD. So GOLD stands for the Global Scale Observations of the Limon Disk, and it's on its way now into geostationary orbit. So this is an orbit that's 22,000 miles above the surface of the Earth. And in that orbit, at that distance, the orbital period of a satellite is 24 hours, and so it stays above the same point on the Earth. And from that distance, GOLD can actually see the entire disk of the Earth. Ah, okay. And what it's going to do is measure the abundance of oxygen and nitrogen and the temperature every 30 minutes. Oh, wow. And so not only is it getting, you know, really high cadence observations of this region of the atmosphere and how it's responding, if we can correlate that with what we know is going down on the surface and what other instruments such as Helios can tell us about what's going on in the uh, space weather, we can actually make space weather forecasts and really sort of forecast what's going to go on in this thermosphere at any one time. Mm. So if there's a geomagnetic storm or whatever coming from the sun, we can tell our astronauts, go to the safest part of your space station in good time. And we can also say, you know, you're going to need to correct your orbit shortly because there's a storm beneath you and it's going to increase the drag on you and and drop you down Mm. in the ISS. So it's a really interesting mission. I don't know how long it's going to be up there, but hopefully it's a long time. It would Mm. be good, I think, if we can get measurements over an entire solar cycle so we can make really long-term predictions of what hmm. oh of course yeah so, so solar cycles about 11 years isn't yeah, it 11 yeah, years. yeah 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 t- 22 years peak to peak i think it's a really interesting mission gold isn't alone there's another one called icon which is actually in the thermosphere and mm-hmm. taking much closer but less frequent observations of, of the earth as well and so these two missions together and understanding whether on the earth and whether further out into space in the exosphere i think we're basically going to be able to make thermospheric forecasts which i think is really cool that does sound really cool Do you know if it's going to have any kind of implications for astronomical observations? So obviously looking out into space, as astronomers we sometimes have issues with, you know, well optical astronomers obviously will have the atmosphere to contend with and even kind of if you go down to lower frequency radio, then the ionosphere becomes a bit of an issue. So do you know if that's going to affect... I don't, but I mean, yeah, it's absolutely true to say that low frequency radio astronomy is sensitive to a lot of stuff that goes on nearby Mm. and so having those inputs into our telescopes and having that we could almost form an ephemeris if you like of what's Mm. going on in the ionosphere at any one time and use that to correct radio observations because of course if we're looking at a pulsar that's somewhere near the sun we have to make corrections and so you know it could well have implications for that and make uh, low frequency astronomy much less noisy just by virtue of the fact that we know what to remove from the signal. It's in a similar vein to adaptive optics in that case. I guess so, yeah. I mean, it's not the primary purpose of the mission. Radio waves, we don't just look at astronomical objects. We use radio waves to communicate with our GPS satellites as well. And if there's a particularly strong geomagnetic storm and the radio propagation from those satellites is affected, there's a potential for people's GPS to go wrong and we'll all be driving into ditches. Well, people do that anyway. People do that anyway (laughs) because none of us look where we're going and we're getting far too reliant on computers. But still, understanding how those radio waves propagate under different conditions is useful Mm. to those satellites we can minimise the number of people driving into ditches, that can only be a good thing. Absolutely, I agree.
And we have got a kind of final extra odd and end segment that we're going to try and introduce. I'm going to hand over to Jake to introduce this. So this is an experimental little new segment, as part of the odds and ends, called Jod Watch, in which we round up some of the happenings that have been going on around the department and at Jodrell Bank Observatory. There's the news that we posted on our Facebook page recently, that the site has been put forward for the 2019 nomination to become a UNESCO World Heritage Site. I think this is absolutely incredible news, and I think Jodrell Bank is definitely deserving of this. I mean, I might be a bit biased there, but... Uh... <laughs> well, it certainly has the history. It does. It has some amazing history. I mean, you just look at some of the old vintage pictures of what Jodrell Bank used to look like. Mm. It's undergone immense changes, and mm. if you go there now and see all the building work, it's only going to get better. Yeah, mm. it's, it's still undergoing immense changes. Yeah. yeah. So it's totally deserved, and, you know, it's other... World Heritage Sites like the Taj Mahal and, and Stonehenge. Stonehenge is great that Jodrell Bank is going to be yeah, amongst those. Yeah. The Lovell Telescope, I think, is an icon. It's you know absolutely masterful piece of engineering and it's continued use across the years. I think it's just been absolutely incredible. It's beautiful. I mean, it's a real privilege to work there, I think. Every mm-hmm. time I walk past it to go into the office at Jodrell, I pinch myself. Cause, so I totally approve of this. I'm not biased at all. <laughs> <laughs> And if you ever spent any time there, you know, if you, plenty of our listeners have visited there. Apart from the dish, it's just a nice, peaceful place to be. Mm. We've got the gardens with all kinds of weird and wonderful and rare trees. And it's just a nice place to just sit and be. And it's also a great place to work. Oh, yeah. I love going out to Jodrell when I do to work just because it is such a peaceful environment. Mm. It's much more productive for me, I feel, working. But it is just because it is peaceful and mm. it is so nice. And sometimes I do think I take it for granted that I can look out the office window and there's a big, huge radio dish there. Mm. And you mustn't forget the three others. Well, of course, well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Mac 2 is a, a little appreciated but really beautiful dish. I mean, that um, is grade one listed as well, isn't it? Is it is now, yeah. yeah, it, is, yeah. it was listed, I think, within the last year it was, it was grade one listed. Mm. But, of course, the Mac 2 is out of the public area, so mm. people don't mm. generally get a closer look at it. So there are fewer pictures of it around. And we've got the 42-foot, which observes the Crab Pulsar every day. And we've got a 7-metre telescope as well, which is used for undergraduates. And so it's not just the Lovell. We have, and, of course, we've got mm. all the emailing out stations as well. Of course, so yeah. Mm. yeah. Jodrell Bank is a huge site. It's not just at Jodrell Bank. It's mm. sort of spread across the country. So I guess we will bring you more on that story as it unfolds. So January 2018 was when the full nomination was submitted to UNESCO for consideration and apparently it's around 18 months afterwards that we might be able to expect it appearing on the World Heritage List if that bid is successful. Okay. So uh, so yeah, 18 months time, maybe a little bit before, I, I don't know, but we'll, we will keep you updated as and when. I'll probably have gone by then. That's a mm. shame. Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> You'll still be here. You I, might be I, as well. Uh, most probably, yeah. Yeah. So there we have it, July 2019, save the date. And so coming back to the department where we are currently now, the Alan Turing Building, something that's been happening recently is our first year students have been going through, I guess what you could call the first stage of their PhDs, which is the literature review. Yeah, so that's something that's basically took up the first couple of months of my PhD. Obviously, I'm, I'm in my first year. So another thing that we did was we presented our literature reviews to the whole department, and it was really interesting kind of seeing the range of research areas that are here. You know, I heard about everything from pulsars to... Pulsars, instrumentation, exoplanets. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a whole host of stuff that's going on here at the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics. The literature review presentations really kind of highlight that, just the range of research that goes on here. That's why I try and make sure to go to as many of those as I can, even mm. though I'm not presenting myself this year. But I yeah. think it's good to try and keep up to date with what other people are up to. Yeah. 
And obviously the main point of a literature review is to kind of make sure that you're familiar with all the literature that has been in your field so far and it's the first step in becoming an expert in your field. You need to know what's gone before you. Uh, what's that called? Standing on the shoulders of giants? Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's no point in doing any science if then six months down the line you realise that someone's already done it two years before you. So that's just one part of doing a PhD in astrophysics. And that will be useful to you because you'll be able to use that as a chapter one for your thesis. Yes, yes, yes. No, that's uh, all all of my references, all of that there. They're all very, very safely saved on my computer. Though it is annoying because since we finished off the literature reviews last month, there have been multiple papers that have come out since. I'm like, oh, that would have been good to put in. That would have been good to put in. So I think it's going to have to be a continuous updated document for oh, me, I yeah. think, just mm. to keep on top of everything, because the amount of literature that gets generated is, is absolutely immense. Mm. Oh yeah, it's far beyond the stage where anyone could reasonably hope to read it all. So, staying on the subject of literature, Ben, you have been doing some work in that respect, have you not? So yeah, I've just had a paper accepted. Hooray. Congratulations. Very nice. It should be out in monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society in the next few weeks. It's on Pulsars. Um, no surprises there. On, no surprises there. I work on trying to understand pulsars that are variable, essentially, whose rotation rates change very stochastically. And sometimes pulsars undergo glitches, where the rotation suddenly speeds up and we see a glitch in the signal from the pulsar. Um, and so what I've been working on is trying to understand the detection limitations of these events. So how small does a change in a pulsar have to be for us to be able to detect it mm. with our current ah, okay. um, observing strategies and what is going to be required for us to detect ever smaller events mm. and so uh, the paper is called Resolving Discrete Pulsar Spin-Down States Using Current and Future Instrumentation and it's already up on the archive ARXIV if you want to take a look but it'll be official publication. I've just sent my proofs in so what the journal does is they will send it to a reviewer who is usually somebody who's an expert in your field and they will comment on the science and give you any extra things you should do or take out and then once that's been approved it will go for proofreading where some editor somewhere will correct all your bad English and and move all the figures around. Move all the figures around so they're as close to where you refer to them in the text. And then they will send you a few things. So I've changed this sentence. Please check that that sentence still makes sense. And they'll do that and maybe ask you to correct a few references. So I've just sent my final proof in. So in the next four weeks, that paper should be out. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. So, so that was looking at like how small a scale you can go in, in detecting glitches. Yeah. Um, not necessarily oh. glitches, but spin down variations. Oh, spin down. Yeah. yeah, so pulsars sometimes undergo these events called mode switches where the, the shape of the pulse profile will suddenly change. Uh, okay. And sometimes, coincident with those events, the rate at which the pulsar is slowing down also changes. Yeah. Um, so I remember you showed me a poster on this a while back. Yeah. About yeah. Events. yeah, and we think that the reason why that is is when the radio emission changes, it changes the braking torque on the pulsar, and that braking torque sets how quickly the pulsar can reduce its rotation speed. And so we think there's a correlation there. And so I've been trying to understand of all the pulsars that we have now that we time, how many of those are likely to be undergoing misbehaviour that we're not sensitive to? And when things like the square kilometre array come online, is it going to be the case that not only are we going to find a lot more new pulsars, but a lot of the pulsars we already time, we're going to see this effect going on because we're much more sensitive. And so I've been talking about that and what the future holds for for this kind of pulsar astronomy. Mm. Well, I'm no pulsar astronomer, but I'll uh, have to give that a read. (laughs) Do, do. And now, spinning around on his office chair, we have George Bendo and Yun Song Lee with Ask an Astronomer. James Walters asks, Have any black holes been found that are not at the centre of their galaxy? So, to be clear, astronomers suspect that a lot of galaxies 
particularly galaxies with active galactic nuclei that produce both jets and a lot of electromagnetic radiation from a central source, contain supermassive black holes with masses greater than 1 million solar masses. Additionally, the Milky Way and many other galaxies appear to contain quiescent black holes at their centers with similar masses. However, astronomers are still trying to prove that these massive compact objects can't be any other type of exotic physical phenomena, and there are still observations ongoing which will definitively prove that these things have to be supermassive black holes and nothing else. Nonetheless, everyone just assumes that these things are black holes, so we'll just go on from there. So aside from AGN, there's a different class of objects, which are also typically assumed to contain potential black holes, and these are X-ray binaries. X-ray binary stars are a class of objects consisting of a normal star, so this could be a hydrogen-burning star like the Sun, or maybe a more evolved star, which has become a red giant, and a compact star, which could be either a white dwarf, a neutron star, or a black hole with a mass equivalent to or about the mass of a typical star. In these X-ray binary star systems, these two stars are very close together, so close that the compact object can gravitationally strip material off of the normal star. As the material falls onto a compact object, it gets gravitationally compressed and very hot, thus producing X-rays. One of the best examples of an X-ray binary in the Milky Way galaxy that potentially contains a black hole is Cygnus X1, which is also one of the brightest X-ray sources in the sky. These objects are also very commonly seen spread throughout the disks of other galaxies. While it is likely that not all of them contain black holes, a few of them probably do. Additionally, a lot of people have been searching for black holes in the centers of globular clusters. The basic idea behind this is that globular clusters look like small versions of either elliptical galaxies or the bulges of disk galaxies, like spiral galaxies. And since the central black hole mass in galaxies is thought to be related to the galaxy bulge size, or if the galaxy is elliptical, just the size of the galaxy, People think that globular clusters should also contain black holes, but because globular clusters are much smaller, these black holes should be about the mass of about a thousand times the mass of the sun rather than a million times the mass of the sun. Research on this is ongoing, but there has been some evidence that people have been finding black holes in the centers of globular clusters, for example, through uh, looking at the motions of stars and inferring from that what central masses may be present in globular clusters. David Kings asked, would there be any noticeable orbitable changes in the local group of galaxies following the merger of the Andromeda and the Milky Way galaxies? For example, I am assuming the combined mass would possibly have greater gravitational effect on other objects. So this question reminds me of the standard introductory astronomy question about what would happen to the orbit of the Earth in the solar system if the Sun was instantly replaced with a black hole which had exactly the same mass. Nothing would happen to the Earth's orbit. 
As far as the Earth and the other planets are concerned, the mass at the center of the solar system has not changed, and therefore there's no change in the gravitational force being exerted on the other planets, so they just continue on in their normal orbits. Another example to consider would be the situation where you have a dwarf star or planet orbiting two stars in close binary orbit around each other, as is seen, for example, in Alpha Centauri. From the perspective of the smaller object, it is orbiting the center of mass of the star system and not orbiting two separate stars. So if those two stars at the center of that star system were to merge together into one larger star, the mass would not change. Uh, assuming that there's no explosion or anything like that, the mass would not change, and therefore the dwarf star or the planet would just continue on in its orbit without really being affected by what's happening in the center. So, to return to the local group, if the Milky Way and the Andromeda galaxy merge, then the mass at the center of the local group is still the same, but it's just more centrally concentrated. Now, there are a lot of dwarf galaxies which are orbiting the Milky Way or the Andromeda galaxy, and if the two spiral galaxies were to merge together, then all of these dwarf galaxies would probably get caught up in the merger process. Similarly, any dwarf galaxies which are sitting kind of in between those two spiral galaxies will also get caught up in the merger process and will also probably fall into the final galaxy which forms from the merger of the Milky Way and Andromeda. However, any dwarf galaxies which are located far enough away from the merger process that they don't initially get caught up in the merger will probably continue on in their orbits around the center of mass in the local group without being significantly affected. The distribution of mass in the local group have changed a little bit from the perspective of these dwarf galaxies and these really distant orbits, but probably not enough for their orbits to change too significantly, and probably not enough for them to end up, for one reason or another, somehow falling into the center of the local group. Hindoplasis asked, how do we know that C, the speed of light, is constant over time and size of the universe? Would a C relative to the size of the universe not explain accelerating expansion more elegantly? So, astronomers have been studying this for a while, actually. And in particular, there are a few astronomers who have specialized in measuring a quantity called the fine structure constant, which is a function of the speed of light and a few other fundamental constants. So, among other things, the fine structure constant is related to small variations in the energy levels within individual electron shells of an atom. When looking at the spectrum, or the rainbow of colors produced from atoms in a thin, hot gas, the light will appear as a series of bright lines, which is typically referred to as a line emission spectrum. This light is produced at very specific wavelengths when an electron falls from one specific energy level to another specific energy level within an atom within the gas. However, the energy levels within the individual atoms usually contain multiple sublevels, which differ from each other just a little bit in terms of energy. 
And so some of these observed spectral lines could be seen to split into two separate lines of slightly different colors if measured carefully enough. By carefully examining the spectra of high redshift objects, particularly quasars, it is possible to search for the signs of this line splitting. Although in practice the split spectral lines appear to blur together, it is possible to distinguish how much the lines are split because the combined spectral line emission will appear to broaden a bit in wavelength. The results from these analyses have actually shown that the fine structure constant does not change, even at very high redshifts. This in turn suggests that the speed of light itself also does not change. So, while well, it's an interesting idea that the changes in the speed of light could account for the apparent accelerating of the expansion of the universe, it's unlikely that this is actually the case based on these observations and measurements of the fine structure constant. That still leaves us with the prevailing theory for why this is happening, which is the theory of dark energy. Thanks for that, Yunsung and George. And now on to the feedback. So for feedback, we've not had any posts that I'm aware of, but we have had an email. So we've had an email coming from Manuel Uribe, who has written to us all the way from Mexico City and yeah. is listening off TuneIn slash Science360. I'm not familiar with that channel. I have to no, check it no, so. yeah. Okay, and so he has this to say. Guys, just because you may know, I've been salivating over the James Webb, originally scheduled for 2011, now projected to 2019, and he says in brackets, I thought we'd be watching that lift off early this year and praying really hard. Have they changed the instrumentation? Why the delay? I can't wait till we have a dedicated infrared telescope up in L2. So this is a good question, actually. Yeah, I don't know of any project, astronomical or otherwise, that has actually completed on time mm. and within budget. I'm sure they exist. Maybe you never hear of them because they just quietly get on with the job that they're meant to do. Well, I think there's the financial and the R&D aspects to them as well, because especially with a big project like James Webb, you can't get something off the shelf because that just doesn't exist. Every single bit of equipment and software pipeline that all has to be bespoke, and that all costs a lot of money. And also, these projects tend to go on over multiple generations of governments as well, and mm. not only that, they're international, so lots of different governments. And those individual governments might change how much money they are or aren't pouring in to projects like this, and mm. so the budgets are continuously changing, and that, yeah. you know, it really does all come down to money at the end of the day, I think. Yeah, mm. I mean, James Webb was nearly cancelled in 2011-2012 because of budgetary constraints, was referred to at the time as the telescope that nearly ate astronomy because of <laughs> how much resources it was sucking in on NASA's part. Better late than never, and it is coming. It's widely cited as a successor to Hubble, but actually, it's, like you say, it's going to be even better. It's looking over a wider band. It's much more broadband than Hubble, so it's, it's going to be looking into the infrared. What's the projected timeline now? 2019, does it yeah. say? Yeah, 2019, I think. I think so, yeah. You know, so don't be surprised if it's not until 2021, because these things are always pushed back. But each time they're pushed back, they're pushed back less. It's almost like a Maclaurin series convergence on, on <laughs> when it'll actually be. But it's mm. coming, and in the meantime, we've got the SKA, so... Yeah. So if that also doesn't get <laughs> I'm sure everything will be fine. Yep, it will. Yeah. yeah. But the JWST definitely is built now. It is undergoing testing. So... It is coming. Yep, and we will keep you updated on it as usual. Yes. 
So in response to the fact that we're being nominated for a UNESCO World Heritage status, we've had lots of messages from Facebook in support of that, so thank you for those. We're just as excited as you are. We've also had an additional message from Teresa Arisp, who saw the super blue blood moon. She says, I woke up at 5.15 to see it. The moon had nearly set behind my house, and it was slightly overcast, but I could see its distinct red hue. Totally worth getting out of bed for, and then I went back to sleep. That was yeah. a good observing strategy. Absolutely. Yeah. However, on Twitter we had Bill saying, very cloudy here in Gosport, not much expectation of a view of the supermoon, sadly. Yeah, did um, you see it? Well, no, I was quite... Was it silent. visible here? I, well, the, the blood part of the moon wasn't visible, so that was referring to the lunar eclipse that oh, okay. uh, some of the world got to see, but sadly not here in the UK. But we did see the super blue moon, so a blue moon obviously referring to the second full moon in a month. The moon doesn't actually turn blue, unfortunately, and super refers to the fact that it is slightly closer to us in its orbit, so it appears slightly bigger and brighter in the sky, but uh, I think re- but so. reports of this do tend to be over-exaggerated a lot of the time and I think the moon is always super so yeah indeed and you notice nobody ever reports a micro moon yeah exactly Aww. yeah yeah thank you for all that feedback and if you do want to get in touch you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net via twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast on facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast youtube at youtube.com slash jodcast via Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcasts. And don't forget to send us post. The address is on the website. And thanks everyone for listening and thanks everyone involved in this episode. So thanks to Hugo, Messias and Bob Watson for the interviews. The editors were George Bendo, Tom Scrag and Andrea Dogaru. The producer was Naomi Asabra from Pong. Until next time, Jod on! Jod on!